0: Buckle up, people. It's federal election time. You've got one vote. How are you going to decide who to vote for?
1: From Hope Media, How in God's Name Should I Vote is a podcast looking at how and why Christians interact with the political process. But don't worry, this is a campaign-free zone. We're not going to tell you who to vote for, but we are going to dig deep into how following
2: Jesus might impact your vote.
0: How do we speak about politics and how do we treat those who disagree with us and what voices are influencing our vote? On today's episode of How in God's Name Should I Vote, we're thinking about how we talk about
3: politics. We want to know everything in advance of time. We want to be able to kill off a debate that doesn't suit us and to use these things ruthlessly to do just that. It's not just
4: about voting on legislation or being able to vote for who we do or don't want to represent us. It does happen through social media.
0: So we have to make sure that we know our history and know what we're talking about. That's all coming up in episode four of How in God's Name Should I Vote? There's no doubt the way politicians speak and the way we discuss politics has changed. It's hard to believe, but iPhones didn't exist 15 years ago and neither did Twitter and Facebook was still a novelty in nappies. Combine this with the advent of a 24-hour news cycle and then mix all those ingredients thoroughly. What did we bake? We baked politispeak 2019 style. No doubt you've been served it up somewhere, maybe daily. Opinion has polarised and the language used to discuss political issues easily degenerates into violence, vitriol and judgement, especially online. Why is it now such a rarity for people who hold opposing views to disagree respectfully? This story from Max Jeganathan summarises The Divide. During my time, and I don't want to generalize because I I loved my friends outside of politics, both Christian and non-Christian, and I loved my colleagues dearly, both Christian and non-Christian. But it wouldn't be misleading to say that for the time I worked for the Labor Party, I used to go to church on Sundays and get knocked around for working for the Labor Party, and then I'd go to work on Mondays and get knocked around for being Christian. Uh, and so I think that is something that – it disappointed me For me, that seemed like a lack of sophistication in people's understanding of the role of government and a lack of sophistication um, and intellectual integrity in how we understood uh, the role of the gospel in the hearts and minds of people. So, we're an unsophisticated lot. No surprises there. But are we really? Maybe we're just a little lazy when it comes to playing our part in democracy. Former Deputy Prime Minister John Anderson thinks there could be a bit of elitism behind the dumbing down of our political conversation. He even implies this might be a deliberate tactic.
3: Human beings are not stupid. They're not lacking in discernment. They're able to understand big and complex issues. And there's constant attempt to dumb everybody down. And, and there's a lot of elitism in today's media and amongst academia. In fact, frankly... When I hear a lot of commentators on their soapboxes today, I realise they're profoundly anti-democratic. They think the mob, the people, get it wrong and that they should be entrusted to make the right decisions. And I'm sorry to say it, but you see that quite a bit in education as well now. It's not fair and it's not true. However, however, we must ourselves try and follow what's going on. We need to drop a tiny bit of our commitment to the good life and to lazing around and arguing with one another and actually inform ourselves and understand what's happening. It's very important. It's important for our children's sake. And even as recently as 20 years ago when we proposed massive changes to the tax system, the GST, there was a furious public debate about it. But it was a much better debate than we're having today about the biggest economic issue before us, which is climate change. Part of the degrading
0: of public conversation and policy implementation seems to be the emergence of the 24-hour news cycle. Policy seems to be created on the run, and gotcha moments seem to be the uh, modus operandi of both the media and politicians. Could you speak into that for us?
3: Well, I think that's part of the problem, but I think the other thing that's turbocharged is the advent of social media. And I think social media has a capacity. I mean, it can be brilliant. We all know that. It really can be. It'd be a fantastic way of connecting and discussing and exchanging information and discovering things. It's also an unbelievable forum for people to foment hate and dislike and gotcha moments, as you put them. And it fits with the 24-hour news cycle, in my view. Uh, We want to know everything in advance of time. We want to be able to kill off a debate that doesn't suit us and we use these things ruthlessly to do just that.
0: Social media is certainly shaping public discourse for better and worse, and it's having its biggest impact on young people. Mark McCrindle is a social researcher and we asked him about its influence. Well, it definitely gives them that
4: Platform of sharing a voice of influencing others, you know, right in front of them and they are technologically savvy. They are empowered through the devices at a young age. They are more aware of the emerging platforms than the rest of us, and so really do drive not only the technological platforms, but the social connectivity platforms. They have more time and larger influence networks than the average adult. All of that gives them prime power, and the digital and the social is the prime power of today. So even regardless of whether they're old enough to vote or not, they have political influence.
0: Does it go so far as to affect us at a values level as well?
4: It does because we have come to a point in society where we've changed from the past. It used to be people looked up to the older people for the direction for the lead and everyone wanted to be older than they were and more mature. Now we're in a youth-obsessed society for good and ill, and everyone is trying to be younger, and everyone is trying to understand and connect with the younger generations, and they have power beyond their years. And so their voice is listened to. They often do drive the popular culture. They are the target market that marketers want to connect with, as I said, powerful on social media. And parents listen and are influenced by their children, who often have a different perspective and bring in some different ideas to what they have been shaped by and with. So yeah, you know, young people have
0: a seat at the table these days and, you know, they're not afraid to use that. It seems to me to be a polarizing communication method. And it occurs that the level of aggression online in online conversation is unlikely to be replicated in a face-to-face conversation without that degenerating into physical violence. How is that affecting us?
4: It's affecting our society in big ways. And, you know, we, we see it all the time don't we each of us as individuals we see it in our society it's affecting young people in a big way i mean they are in the formative years the more vulnerable years we just did a study on bullying and found that the majority of young people more than 6 in 10 uh, have experienced cyberbullying and often you know with that goes some face to face bullying in their social context so so that's a real challenge they see the best of technology and its empowerment, they see the worst of technology and its isolation. We call them the iGen because the internet and the iPad and everything, but they're the iGen in terms of isolation and individualism and some of the negative consequences of that. So the technology while empowering, it also allows people to hide behind the anonymity, to converse in a way they would never do face-to-face in terms of impolite ways, to say the least. And that can be dangerous for young people if they follow that pathway as well.
0: Do you think that that has affected the way that our political discourse now occurs in Australia, government and opposition, uh, policy framing and the public conversation?
4: Definitely. You know, I'm sure we've all seen it's more of a shrill debate than it used to be. There's more trying to find the gotcha moment and playing the person rather than the policy and trying to get the grab. And people know the power of social media and the power of the mainstream media to get the little grab and to replay that, and that has impact politically. And so that's the game that we're in, politically. It's shorter term. It's focused on, I guess, getting the headline and getting the attention. And that, by its nature, creates more of an aggressive and shrill tone than the broader nation-building bipartisanship that you know we used to look for and, uh, and I guess, accept.
0: The other side of that uh, conversation is... Uh, policy via Twitter in terms of some of what we see coming out of the United States of America. And I don't think that it has landed quite in the Australian Political Foundation quite yet, but it seems to me that as I look at diplomacy and policy being driven by social media, that policy on the fly seems to be an incredibly problematic space. Mm.
4: Yeah, that's true, Andrew. Democracy as we know it has changed. And you can get even in Australia, government come out with a policy or at least run a policy idea up the flagpole to see how it floats, and then there's a hashtag campaign, there's a a backlash on social media, and suddenly you'll see that policy quickly be pulled down, be revoked, be be walked back. That's the reality today. So it's not just about voting on legislation or being able to vote for who we do or don't want to represent us. It does happen through social media. And we've seen that, therefore, it's not just the traditional voters who have influence. I mean, for good, it gives those who are Australians but don't have the eligibility to vote, uh, opportunity to share their views, but also it opens it wide up beyond our nation to corporations, to others who have nefarious reasons for getting involved in our policy debate. So it's not altogether good, and it certainly has changed the way politicians and policies are managed.
0: Perhaps one of the best proponents of policy by social media is American President Donald Trump. His Twitter feed is followed by 60 million people and includes over 40,000 tweets. We asked Jim Wallace about the impact of Donald Trump's social media use on political discourse.
5: When you have a political discourse more and more governed by accusation and slander and lies, we're in deep trouble with the common good. I think Donald Trump has trumpetized American politics, not just on the right, but on the left too. So how do we speak differently? How do we act differently? How do we treat those with whom we disagree differently? How do we disagree without demonizing? How do we discuss without attacking? How do we discern how to solve something without blaming our opponents for the problem entirely? How do we take responsibility? So I think Donald Trump is having a very dangerous impact on American political discourse And global discourse, there's no respect for the other. There's no calling your opponents, making fun of them uh, for how they look, making nicknames for them all. This is not something leaders should do. How do we bring people together? How do we listen and then lead and disagree with courage and even pay the price for disagreement, but not become um, those who accuse and slander and lie? What he's doing, is he's accusing slattering and lying every single day and that does impact the country and our kids and how they think we should behave and it's a very dangerous situation but also it's an opportunity if we see what's going wrong can decide how we can
0: turn this thing around we've entered peak weird when the most powerful person on the planet has no qualms about ridiculing people online while simultaneously announcing foreign policy changes that shift the geopolitical landscape. But the flip side of the online world is the apparent echo chamber of reinforced preferences and prejudices, something about algorithms. I asked Mark McCrindle if there's any truth to that. You know, we're in a world of AI, of computer algorithms that serve up
4: to us in our search based on previous searches or or based on our demographics or based on who we are or where we're located. So that happens around social media as well. It happens around through our own social media channels around the views that we are hearing. And it does therefore limit the perspectives that we get. We sometimes think that social media is a global channel and opens up the world, but in so many ways, it does echo back to us, you know, our own views. And that can be damaging to uh, broadening the the possibilities and a more open debate.
0: Hundreds of thousands of young people will vote for the first time in the upcoming federal election. They've grown up with mobile phones in their hand. How do you think that's shaped them?
4: Well, it's made them yeah digital in terms of tool that they use and visual, you know, not just the written form because that's a lot of the content that they consume and they're certainly socially influenced through that platform. They're global in the outlook. Uh, and they're mobile, you know, in terms of not just the device but when and where they access content and where they'll work and study. It's a different generation in so many aspects and that is clearly going to inform Uh, how they view and shape how they vote. It's these Gen Zs that will be voting for the first time. Clearly are are shaped in a different era to early voters of the past. And uh, in a lot of ways, it's made them more informed and more global in outlook. But in a lot of ways, it's made them a bit more superficial in some of the aspects that they look at. And they're not consuming mainstream news And we've seen the danger of the social influence and indeed the fake news and the fake friends and everything that goes along with that. So there's powerful tools that they have, but it doesn't automatically increase the quality of the political debate or the information that they are served.
0: While social media can favour the superficial and the polarising, there's also an opportunity to use it well, to speak in a way that encourages and builds up, an opportunity to engage in a way that is hopeful and loving and kind. Liam Denny asked Barney Swartz about how we should go about the task of reforming political discourse. Barney is the former religion editor at The Age and a senior fellow at the Centre for Public Christianity.
6: Well, I think we have to engage as much as possible, remembering—and I'm not always the best uh, exponent of this—that tone is, is just as important as what we say. People will often forget the arguments down the track, but they'll remember the way you said it. My natural personality tends to be a little bit towards sarcastic, if you ask my family. So I have to watch that very carefully. But the point is to engage. Don't let the misconceptions flourish because they're not challenged. I often say to people when they ask exactly this question, "You have to know." The Christian contribution to Australia so that you can defend it. When people say that Christianity is responsible for all the wars, or that Christianity has given nothing to Australia, these are terrible misconceptions, but if we don't challenge them because we can't, then that's our fault. So we have to make sure that we know our history and know what we're talking about.
0: Okay, so I guess there's a comment there about learning to engage well. Not not all engagement from Christians uh, in the media has been helpful, but there is a way to do it well. Would you agree?
6: Yes. We don't want to be angry, and we don't want to be moralistic, uh, and we shouldn't be those things anyway. But those are the things that turn off the ordinary listener. Uh, the ordinary listener or, or reader is as annoyed with the proselytising atheists as they are with the Christians that they regard as well or moralisers, uh, if anything more so. Uh, it's a very interesting fact from the 2011 census that although nearly three million Australians did not identify with any religion, Only 65,000 call themselves atheists, fewer than call themselves Jedi Knights. And that is probably because of the strident tone and unpleasant nature of of that militant atheist evangelism.
0: I guess it's a matter of of not considering that our voice will be dismissed initially. That that would be a a wrong approach. But understanding that if we we do things well, we will be heard. Precisely. You, You summed it up precisely, Liam. Now, if there's one thing that's clear, Liam Denny is a fair bit smarter than me. But this point is also clear. Christians can be heard if we speak well. John Dixon agrees that how we speak is just as important as what we say. As the founding director of the Centre for Public Christianity, he's thought a lot about how Christians should speak into the public square.
1: By definition, if you live in a democracy, you're going to be involved in politics as a citizen because we get to vote. And we get to hold opinions about political issues, policies, and so on. And that whole word group, you know, politic, policy, polite, these all come from the Greek word politio, which was the ancient word used, and it's used in the New Testament, for living as a citizen. The interesting thing, though, is where you get it in the New Testament, uh, usually, it's kind of a a counter-politic. It's used to mean live as a citizen of Christ's kingdom as you go about your business in the world, which is a way of saying, you know, ultimately our allegiance is to Christ, not to any particular political party or agenda. So the church needs to be really careful as it's involved in politics, not to think it's able to call the shots, not to think that we run the show or even sound like we run the show. I mean... I'm pretty sure most Christians don't actually think it's their right to run Australia, but sometimes we can sound like we think that. Uh, We don't intend to, but that's often how it comes across to people. And when Australians feel that the church is telling people what to think, what to do, what to believe, they're really put off. So it's mixed, you know, we've got to jump into the conversations, try and persuade people about what is good, but never come across as a bully as uh, someone running the show.
0: So you're saying we, we should know our place in the political sphere and, and not try and overstep?
1: Yeah, the way I like to think of it is there there are kind of two models. Maybe there are more models. The two that I want to sort of tease out are uh, the prophetic model, which you often hear people, uh, Christians talk about, where you know the church's role is like a prophet in ancient Israel, like Isaiah or Amos or Jeremiah or whatever. And our role is to be the prophet to the nation and tell the nation what to do to proclaim the good with a kind of moral authority that you do find in the prophets, right? The problem with that is the prophets were speaking to Israel and they were actually prophets of Israel they did have moral authority over Israel. They didn't for a second think they had moral authority over you know, Egypt down the road or, or Babylon or whatever. And even when they do speak of Babylon and Egypt, it's not because they think Babylon and Egypt are ever going to hear their message. It's usually just to reassure God's own people that God has everything in hand and will bring justice and so on. So the prophetic model is one that a lot of Christians— think is the right model and i just think it's wrong i frankly think it's wrong it, it's to miss the fact that we are not in ancient israel anymore the church is not the prophet to australian society in the way that jeremiah was the prophet to israel that's to completely miss the situation we are this is the other model dinner guests at someone else's dinner party you know imagine you know your neighbor puts on a dinner party invites you over a beautiful spread we well, don't go there you know acting like you're the host Like you own the meal, you own the house, you own the table that you can tell people what to do. You go thrilled, excited, cheerful that you're a dinner guest and you act like a good guest and hopefully get an invitation back. Obviously, you share your opinion. You try and persuade the table. But in the end, you want to be a good guest, not the host, not the prophet. I don't think there's any doubt that
0: we Christians need to learn about being invited in rather than assuming we are welcome or even being the hosts. And we can and will receive a hearing. But John Dixon's vision for being good dinner guests can be balanced by recognising who didn't and who doesn't get a dinner invitation ever and speaking up on their behalf This is how Vicki Howarth understands the prophetic voice of the church today.
2: If we had greater civic and political engagement amongst Christians, advocating not for ourselves, but working for those acutely affected by injustice, we could actually shift the public perception of Christianity in the church. Andrew, you mentioned that my background was in corporate public relations and Mm. One of my jobs was to look after many corporations and their public image and reputation. It saddens me when I look at the brand church in Australia. I think recent events as a result of the Royal Commission into Institutionalized Child Abuse, they've trashed the brand church. I think we're often seen increasingly as an irrelevant institution. And at worst, we can be a key part of the abusive system, And for me, when I talk to people outside of the church, they say, you know, we're known for more for what we're against, defending our Christian values than what we're actually for, and we're actually hypocrites. How do we turn that around? I think secular world longs for an authenticity and relevance. Personally, I've seen people's view of church change and their hearts soften when they see us really putting our faith into action and helping others, but also speaking into the political sphere. So my question in this is, what voice should the church be having in this narrative when we're called to love our neighbor? And I think the church has a big prophetic role to play. That We can lead the way and speak about a different narrative linked to speaking about kingdom values um, you know, Jesus describes the church as the light of the world in Matthew five thirteen. In living this out, we've got an opportunity to invite people in, including our politicians, to really see and do things differently. Let's tell a different story. Let's speak into a greater narrative a narrative of. God's restorative plan to see all human life flourishing and to advance justice on earth, to see dignity for all. But I think we need to have skin in the game to do this.
0: Skin in the game. That means not just talking about stuff, but taking action, making a stand. It doesn't end when the polling booths close. In our next episode, we'll be talking about people power. What can we be doing to influence the governance of our nation, even when the election is over?
2: I
5: guess we learnt patience, and we learnt that most of the process that happens actually happens behind the scenes.
0: We'll be joined by Stop the Traffic's Carolyn Kitto, along with Brad Chilcott, Mike Frost, Jim Wallace and others.
3: Civil disobedience is about media attention. It's about doing something that gets uh, media attention so that people become more aware of the issues.
0: If you're enjoying How in God's Name Should I Vote, you might like to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from. Thanks to our producers, Katrina Rowe and Liam Denny, and our online content manager, Andrew Morris. Production by Richard Hamway.